Yes, good morning, everyone. Well done. Yeah, I was about to say, well done for getting here. I mean, it stopped snowing, thank heavens, which is good, but I know the DLR's a problem. Um, so we've got, a, I hope, a, a very stimulating day for you, because you are looking at one of the finest pieces of music ever written. Uh, and you can see from the way I've laid it out, and that there's so much to say about this piece that I've had to cherry-pick slightly. Um, so in this first section, I'm going to do an introduction to Bach, and we're going to look at this the first piece of the St. Matthew Passion. Uh, and then in the afternoon, uh, sorry, not in the afternoon, at 12 o'clock, uh, we're going to look at the role of the chorus, and all of the chorus writing. And then after lunch, uh, we're going to look at, before telling the story, we're going to look particularly at three characters, and that's, that's Jesus, Peter, and Judas. And then in the afternoon, I borrowed this um, phrase from T.S. Eliot, in my beginning is my end, um, to see... First of all, the sort of symmetries and symbolism that Bach is using, and also, and also to work out how we leave this piece, what we do afterwards, because I firmly believe it's a piece which doesn't allow us to go out feeling completely happy and to have all the answers. It's a piece which asks more questions in some ways than the answers that it gives. Uh, so that's the shape of the day. <coughs> oh, please do come and have. You've got... Two handouts, um, one of them which says excerpt one on the front, um, that is the texts of all the excerpts that I'm going to be playing in the course of the day. So you'll need to reject it at this minute, but you'll need to refer backwards and forwards for that, and obviously I'll tell you when it's coming up. Um, I just wanted you to, especially because it's in German, I wanted you to have the text so you can see what's going on. But could you have a quick look, first of all, at the one which has the map? on the front of it. It's not a very sharp map, I'm sorry, but it's just about alright. And this is because I want to give you a just a brief outline of Bach and his work. So what you've got on the front here are the places where he's connected with um, most particularly um, Mühlhausen, particularly Eisenach, Arnstadt, Weimar, Leipzig. Do you see Leipzig sort of in the middle to the right? To the, to the east? Yeah. That's where the St. Matthew Passion is written the Thomaskirche in Leipzig, <coughs> curtain just above it. And if you open up this handout, you'll see a, uh, a sort of timeline of events. I don't, I'm not going to go through all of this. It's partly so you can take it away um, and have a look at it um, more carefully. But just have a look at it whilst I talk you through this. So Bach is born in 1685 on the 21st of March. 1685 was a bit of a bumpy year because it's also the uh, birth year of Handel. You can see that on the 6th of February, uh, sorry, the 23rd of February, and Domenico Scarlatti on the 26th of October. Three of the great uh, Baroque writers, and it's particularly extraordinary that um, Bach and Handel should be born in the same year. Um, he's um, earning his living by the time he's 15 as a chorister and organist. He's absolutely steeped in music. His parents have got music. Uh, and, of course, we, we like to, with uh, composers, um, we, we like to put them on a pedestal and we assume that Bach is you know, very holy and, um, and devout, and I'm sure he was, but he was a difficult man to work with for the authorities. Uh, he had quite a rough time at school. John Elliot Gardner has done some research um, into this, and he's had, um, I think he encountered some rather troubling experiences in his um, schooling life. Um, and, of course, he had a lot of children so he marries his second cousin, Maria Barbara, in 1707. And there you can see him on the 17th of October. 
the same year that his, uh, his great, the person he greatly admired, Buxtehude, dies that same year. And um, she um, bears him seven children. And then he marries again uh, the, the very famous name of Anna Magdalena, uh, very shortly after that, and she bears him other 13 children. She also has time, apparently, to copy out his music for him. I'm not quite sure when she, when she got time to do that. Um, but I want, to, I want to move ahead. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to talk very much about this at all, but you can see between um, his marriages, um, in 1721, there he is marrying Anna Magdalena, um, that he's, he's got various jobs that he does, but the most important thing for us is that he ends up in Leipzig. Okay, and I want to go to jump to that little bit there. And he becomes the cantor uh, of the big church, the Thomas Kirche, in Leipzig. Uh, his job there um, is actually, it's not just the Thomas Kirche, it's also three other principal churches that he has to work in. But he instructs the choristers in the Thomas Schuler, the St. Thomas School, um, he, I'm, I'm looking, I came across a quote that he said of the 54 boys he had there um, in the various different choirs, he said that 17 were competent, 20 were not yet fully, and 17 were incapable. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly how he feels. No, I don't. <laughs> it's not true at all. Um, uh, the best singers uh, that he had available formed a cantata choir, and it's those people who sang his extraordinary series of cantatas, and he wrote sets of cantatas for the whole of the church year, for the Sundays of the church year, and the major feast days. But there was also a second choir and a third choir that he was running. Um, life in Leipzig was quite restricted for Bach, unlike when a previous employment in Curtin, where he'd written a lot of instrumental music, he was able to do effectively what he wanted. Uh, in Leipzig, it's much more rigorous. Um, singing classes, 9 till 12, Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Day off on Thursday, a bit like me. Friday, he had to talk, teach in the morning. Um, rehearsals for the cantatas on Saturday. Sunday services begin at 7am, not like me, thank heavens. Motets and hymns and an organ voluntary. Uh, then you've got a cantata after that, um, a, a long sermon, at least an hour. <coughs> Service finished about midday, and then there was a communion service after that. So he was, he was busy. He was very busy. He wrote about 250 cantatas in his time at Leipzig, which was pretty extraordinary. The end of his life was difficult. Uh, in the 1740s, he started to go blind. He'd always worked by candlelight, and he'd always worked very close. So he, he'd written out when he was a younger man. Um, a lot of music from people like Buxtehude um, and other greats, particularly Buxtehude, he'd written them out by hand, gone to, get, got copies from a source, um, and his eyesight really started to fail him towards the end of this decade. Um, we're looking right ahead now to 1750. There he is at the beginning of 1750, engraving the art of fugue, one of his great keyboard works. Um, he has an operation in the March and April by an oculist, uh, somebody operating on his eyes in 1750. Doesn't sound great, does it? Um, on the morning of the 28th of July, he woke up to find he could bear to see strong light. He could cope with it, and he could see quite clearly again. But however, that same day he had a stroke and then a fever, and he died in the evening at a quarter to nine. And he's buried in the St John's Cemetery, which stood uh, one block outside the town's Grima Gate. 
Uh, when St. John's Church, just to know, so you know where he is now, when St. John's Church was rebuilt in 1894, um, they, they thought they'd had his body exhumed. I'll have a look at his, um, his, his bones. Uh, they, they, they still think it is. I mean, we're not entirely sure. Um, and he's now um, buried in a, a vault, was then buried in a vault in the Johanneskirche. Um, but that was destroyed by bombing. So he's now in the Thomaskirche, where he spent most of his time working. Um, he's a devout <coughs> Lutheran. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll know this. Very important to get this in right from the word go. He lives and breathes the message of Martin Luther. He has sermons by him in his house. He has hymnals. Um, his sermons are annotated. Lots of um, scribblings and margins. Um, he's obviously very devout. And he finishes many of his works with um, initials. Um, most normally, SDG, which is Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, which is what we call this study day. But also INJ, which is in nomine Jesu, in the name of Jesus. And JJ, sometimes, which is Jesu Yuva, Jesus help me. Help us. Help, just even. So that's a little bit of um, biography. If you turn on to the back page, I'm not going to take you through all of this, but this is a little glossary, because I am using terms with which some of you might be unfamiliar. And forgive me, I've assumed no knowledge as the baseline of this, so I'm sorry for those people who know more. Um, whizzing through this briefly, the Baroque. The Baroque is a period of music. It's a period of many things, actually, but for our purposes, it's a period of music comes after the Renaissance period and before the Classical period. So after Palestrina, but before Mozart, essentially. That's where Bach sits. Um, I've then talked about a little bit about oratorio and opera, and I'll refer to this later. Bach does not write any operas. Everybody is writing operas in the Baroque period. It's the new thing. It's the new discovery. Let's do emotion. Bach doesn't write any. So at some stage... I'm assuming this is a conscious decision. He says, I'm not going to do this. The St. Matthew Passion and the St. John Passion, therefore, have quite a lot of operatic elements. But the key difference between the opera and the oratorio is there's no dressing up. So there are characters, but there's no dressing up, there's no stage. Uh, and, of course, opera, usually, but not exclusively, especially in the modern times, is on secular subjects, whereas oratorio is on sacred subjects. I need to talk to you a little bit about the three recitativos. You see three, four, and five on this list. Uh, recit, recitation. Uh, this is the way that Baroque composers, starting really with a little-known guy called Perry, but most particularly with Monteverdi, this is how they communicate narrative. So in the Renaissance period, you have four, or five, six, seven, eight voices, even 12 sometimes, working at the same time, trying to tell a story. This is different. It's a solo voice with very simple accompaniment, telling the story. It means you can get through it quite quickly. Um, and there are two types of recitativa. There's recitativo secco, dry, recit, like your wine. Uh, that's the one which is fast, or nearly always quite fast, accompanied just with an organ, uh, basso continuo, and a cello. Recitativo accompagnato is accompanied recitativo which can be fast or slow, but it's accompanied by strings, and that's going to be very important for us as we look at the St. Matthew. Basso continuo, that's just, that, that's the bass line. That's all you really need to know. The bass line contains a lot of numbers, tells organists what to play. 
Aria, that's easy. Darkapo, you should just know, a Baroque period. They love Darkapo arias. You start your piece, has a first section and a second section. Then it says DC, Darkapo. You have to go back to the beginning, sing the first section again. It's, they, they love it. And they normally put a lot of ornaments in when they go around the second time. Chorus, easy. Large vocal ensemble. Chorale, German hymn. Bach's obsessed with them. You're going to hear a lot about them in the course of today. Obligato is um, an instrument you can't do without. It's essential. And again, there are a lot of obligato parts in the St. Matthew Passion. Um, solo lines in instruments, which you absolutely have to have. And Fugue um, is there. Bach is the greatest writer of fugues there has ever been. People struggle desperately to write fugues after Bach, even Beethoven. Uh, Brahms is, is pretty good at it. Um, but he is the one who can take a fugue, which means you have two, three, four voices. They each start at different times with the same tune. But the key thing is, they do their first tune, first voice does the first tune, second voice comes in, has to have um, the same tune, whilst the first part sings another tune which works with the first tune. A subject and a counter-subject. That's the two elements of fugue you have to have. And what Bach does is he writes very complex ones, and he does everything you can with these melodies. He breaks them up, he turns them upside down, does them backwards. Uh, it, it's just extraordinary. So you get to the end of a fugue by Bach, and it's like getting to the end of a three-course meal, because you feel completely satisfied with what he's done. And the last, this biggest one, the big one here, BWV, you'll notice in the timeline, um, all of Bach's music has a number, a BWV number, and it's the Bach Werke Versaikis, um, the Bach Works catalogue. So it was um, the people cataloguing his work, basically. There you are, it says, first published in 1950 by Wolfgang Schmieder, sorry. another version in 1990, another one in 1998. Um, and interestingly, there's the, the Anhang, the, the annex, um, they're still listing over 200 lost or doubtful works. So it's, it's quite hard to... <coughs> work out what, um, what's his sometimes and what isn't. So you've got that to refer to. If there's anything that I'm saying you're not sure about, have a, have a little bit of that. Thank you. What's a cantata? Cantata is a sung work, as opposed to a sonata. Sonata is played, cantata is sung. So for Bach cantatas, it's chorus and orchestra. Yeah, that's, I should have put that one in. Um, yeah, sing, the crucial thing. Cantare. Right, we're nearly ready to go on the St. Matthew Passion. <laughs> um, just before we get going, I need to tell you about passions before Bach, because there is a long tradition of singing passions. Um, it goes right back to the very early days, and the Jewish tradition of chanting, uh, it, it really informs our plain song. So singing is, is a really integral part of spiritual life. Um, and it seems as if the chanting of the passion is one of the oldest forms that we've done. Uh, I mean, the sort of thing you would have got initially, I've just got a little excerpt here, it's not very complicated, but you would have something like this. Preches populi tui quesumus domine clementer exaudi, et qui juste pro peccatis nostris affligimur, pro tui nominis gloria misericordia liberemur. That's it. Very plain. Okay. As you go through plain song, it gets a little bit more decorated. Um, because you're doing such a special thing. People like to make it a bit more special. But essentially very plain. 
Originally, one person would have sung all of it. As time goes on, people recognise the dramatic qualities that you can bring to the story. So you end up with three characters. That's a chronista, the person, the person who tells the story. Um, so the evangelist, we would say in terms of Bach. Jesus, he's easy. And synagogue, and that's everyone else. So Peter, Pilate, Judas. So you'd have three singers working at slightly different pitches. The chronista in the middle, Jesus lower, lower voice, and synagogue a higher voice. I'm presuming, I've never seen this written down anywhere, Jesus is lower because he is serious and weighty and grounded and strong. Peter and Judas and Pilate and all the rest of them are higher voices, they're weaker, lighter, less grounded, um, less serious. Um, we do find, as you come into the Renaissance period, that's immediately pre-Bach, uh, well, let's say immediately pre-Monteverdi, that you, Renaissance composers will write the synagogue parts to chorus. So they'll start to give um, the crowd scenes. So William Byrd does this, Thomas Louis de Victoria does this. So you go along with your chant, and then you get um, a bit of chorus, which again makes it more dramatic. And it exists pretty much like that until a guy called Bartold Heinrich Brox comes along. And he is a librettist, um, and he does something really unusual, which is to take elements from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and put them into one passion story. So you get the best of all of it, really. Slightly strange, of course, in terms of the, the drama, because one of the great things about the St Matthew Passion uh, versus the St. John Passion, is, is the differences between the two. But in Brock's Passion, then you find that uh, you get absolutely everything. Quotations from each gospel. And Handel does a setting of Brock's Passion, and Telemann, and a person you won't have heard of called Stolzel also does one. Uh, so that is, there is, there is this idea that we should have orchestrally accompanied passion settings with some arias. This is, this is, this is coming around into the mix. And so, the St. Matthew Passion. Here we come. It's written for a Good Friday Vesper service. And we think it was first performed in 1727. Uh, it's divided into two parts, the St. Matthew Passion, the first part and the second part. And in between both, you'd be delighted to know, there was a sermon. <laughs> and it would not have been short. Now, when you think that the St. Matthew Passion is the same length as some of the operas of Wagner, you can imagine how amazing it would be to have a sermon in the middle of it. And they, so they don't do short sermons in this period. And I want to read a little bit from Bach's contract to you. Uh, this is um, quoted in the New Bach Reader, a very good book, if you want to know more about Bach. It says here, In order to preserve the good order in the churches, and I've interpolated, he would... So arrange the music that it should not last too long and shall be of such nature as not to make an operatic impression, but rather incite the listeners to devotion. That's what it says in his job description. Not too long, not to make an operatic impression, but to incite listeners to devotion. This is the largest, longest thing he ever wrote. It has two orchestras, with a massive array, as I've mentioned, of obligato instruments. It's two choirs, a third choir, which performs in two movements, a ripieno choir. Ripieno, I should have put that on my list. Ripieno means stuffing. 
<laughs> it's um, as in sort of turkey, you know. Um, it, it's the extra bit that you put in um, that, that adds, adds to the final. Ripieno. Uh, Ripieno choir of just the top line. And it has soloists who sing character roles and soloists who sing, sing poetic arias. So it's big. The libretto of the Sabbatic Passion is, as I mentioned, is divided into two parts, and it corresponds, um, not entirely, but pretty much with the 26th and 27th chapters of St Matthew. The first part goes up to most of chapter 26, and then the second part starts with the remainder of chapter 26 and chapter 27. And he sets every word of those two chapters in Martin Luther's translation. There's no cherry-picking here, no missing bits out, every single bit. There are, in fact, three librettists uh, at work here in the St Matthew Passion. There is St Matthew, who gives us the narrative. Uh, there's then a guy who writes under the name of Picander, and I'm going to talk to you about him uh, a little more uh, later on. His full name was Christian Friedrich Enrici, and he's knocking around from 1700 to 1764, and he is the librettist for quite a lot of Bach's music once he's in Leipzig. It's where he comes from, Picander. So he writes the arias and pulls together the music for the four choruses, the one that opens, the ones that open and close part one and part two. That's what he's doing, the meditative parts of the Sabbatic Passion. But we then have a whole host of other librettists, because Bach comes up with this very modern new idea that as part of the Passion story, you should have him sing chorales. German chorales, uh, which would be well known by the congregation, and these are interpret interpolated throughout the telling of the story. There is a, a very much a sense, I think, uh, with Bach, in which he is the a bit, a bit like Handel. He fuses all of the traditions together: French, German, Italian, even the English, especially like Handel's case, the English choral tradition. Um, all become fused together. You find every element uh, of all of the music that's going on in Europe, uh, in Bach and Handel's music. He's very keen, I think, Bach, to explore every avenue. You see this particularly in the second half when there's an array of arias which just go through every conceivable type of style. And we're going to listen to two of those a little bit later on. And I think it was Christian Wolf who pointed out that this means the St. Matthew Passion and the other big choral works, in a sense, are encyclopedic because they, they contain everything that's going on at the time. And Bach likes this. He likes encyclopedias. He's a bit of a completist. The art of fugue, the clavier fugum. And he likes to do everything. The great 48 preludes and fugues on every key that you can write in. He, he's, he's a bit of an encyclopedic completist person. Bach, we think, really liked the St. Matthew Passion. How can you not? <laughs> Uh, he, it's said that in his old age he went to considerable trouble to repair the score, the, the, uh, the full score of the St. Matthew Passion. Um, and we've still got that copy that he repaired. Um, it's, uh, it looks beautiful anyway, but he, it was re, it was sewed by hand, which he did, and the biblical words are all highlighted by using red ink. It's, very, it's obviously something which is very close to him. What did other people think? Well... Um, there was one uh, dowager, apparently, who said, God save us, my children, it's like being at the opera comedy. <laughs> <laughs> opera comedy? Opera? Yeah, I forget. Opera comedy? I don't know. 
And, of course, the church authorities were so pleased that they reduced Bach's salary. <laughs> um, it isn't performed that often. We know of two performances, and there might have been another one, but it, partly because its scope is so big and it requires so many players, and not necessarily so many singers, but, but you know, certainly very... And I'll come on to that again later. Um, after his death, the people who saw the manuscript um, decided it was unperformable. It was just too big. That gives you an idea. So I've already mentioned the operas of Wagner. This is the, what Bach is writing in 1727. By the time he dies in 1750, people are saying, well, it's, it's just impossible. You just can't do it. It's too much. Uh, and it remains unperformed until 1829, when Mendelssohn uh, gets his hands on it, young Mendelssohn, who was recently converted to Christianity by that stage. And he's very taken by Bach. And uh, he conducts a performance of it, heavily abridged, because it's unperformable. can't possibly do all that. So he cuts it right down and does the first performance of it. And really, that performance is the reason why we have the Bach um, interest. Interest in Bach restarted. It's entirely down to Mendelssohn. And a great service he's done to us. Okay, now, before I finish this session, I want to listen to some music, because I've talked for too long. So uh, we're going to look at excerpt one. Okay, which is the first chorus of the St. Passion. If you want to get a really good taste of what's going to happen in an opera, you listen to the overture. This is the overture, but it's an overture with singing. And it is massive and epic. Uh, and it's in E minor. So minor keys are darker coloured than major keys. So if you're writing music for a wedding scene, like um, Mozart is in The Marriage of Figaro, it'll be in C major, bright, happy major keys. If you're writing um, the death of a great heroine, uh, like Dido, uh, in uh, Dido and Aeneas by Henry Purcell, then you're in G minor, because the minor keys are darker. They're more associated with mourning, travail, and happiness. Here we are in E minor. Okay, So he sets us out immediately that there is something wrong you know that something, something is wrong, but it's also, for, in this music, momentous and um, unstoppable. It has four beats in a bar, this chorus. One, two, three, four. Simple. Each beat is divided in three, into three beats. So it's one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three. One, two, three, and so on, repeating. Twelve, eight is the, um, the description for that. And 12.8 is the metre of a saraband, a slow dance, actually. This first movement is one of Bach's longest movements he ever wrote. So you see, where everything is already on a cosmic scale, right, right from the word go. It has both the orchestras, it has both the choirs, and it has the third choir, the ripieno, the stuffing choir. And... It is, um, this picks up on something in the Brock's Passion, actually. It's, um, the, the words uh, are said by the daughter of Zion. This is a reference to the Song of Songs, um, who is inviting us to come and look on the scene of Jesus, um, what's about to happen to Jesus. And then there's an extraordinary question and answer session. So if you look at your excerpt, you see the first line, Komm dir Töchter, come daughters, help me lament. Behold, the first choir says, whom says the second choir in answer. The bridegroom. There's another Song of Songs reference there. Behold him, say the first choir. How, say the second choir. As a lamb, say the firsts. 
Behold, say the first. What, say the seconds. Behold the patience. So it, it's a very compelling dialogue. So it's drama. It's immediately drama going on there. And then halfway through, you will hear, you see the, 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 the lines which are indented slightly at the bottom. O Lamb Gottes unschuldig. O innocent Lamb of God. That is the chorale. That's a chorale tune. And Bach brings it in, in the middle of this phenomenal piece of music. He adds another layer. Um, sounds a bit like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And that is in G major, not E minor. As a major triad, whereas we're in a minor triad. For the most of this chorus. And this is um, what I'm really going to pick up on in the second session, but I want to plant this with you now. What Bach does by using chorales is to place us at the centre of the passion narrative. So a chorale is something that you as an audience at, at the time, in 1727 would know inside out. You'd sing them every week. We're going to sing one ourselves this afternoon. You'll know it. Oh, sacred head, sore wounded. That's one of the ones he sets five times in the Sabbath Passion. So these chorales, they do two things. They stop the narrative, which means we can think about what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're seeing. But also, it means there's this story from the past going on, and all of a sudden, you are pulled into the middle of it. We're not actually sure if, they, if the congregation would have sung the hymns. Some of Bach's harmonisations are really hard, so they may not have sung them all. I know performances where they have done that, and you are immediately pulled in. So in this first chorus, there's this <laughs> astonishing cosmic piece of music, and you are right in the middle of it with your chorale, us, the people of today. Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, the great um, composer and uh, conductor, described it as redemptive clarity when that chorale comes in, partly because of the E minor, G major thing. You hear it, it's like a, it's like a shaft of sunlight which comes, comes through it all. And we're going to listen and talk in a little bit, but I want to leave you with one little quote from Martin Luther. I'm going to come back to it, so don't worry about it now. Just listen to it. Martin Luther states unequivocally in the thesis of 1509, when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is your work. Okay, I'm going to say that again. <laughs> when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is your work. So he was very concerned with the fact that it isn't the Jewish people being evil who crucified Jesus, it's all of us. It's all of humanity, and we are as much a part of it as anyone else. Okay, let's listen. Um, I'm, going to, I'm not going to do this all day, because I, otherwise I'd turn it into a Radio 3 um, record review. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to play you two versions of this, to give you two ideas of what people can do. I'm using two recordings throughout the day. One is by Tom Koopman. I'll give you all the details later. One is conducted by Tom Koopman with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and one by Nicholas Harnenkor with the Consentus Musicus Wien from Vienna. Um, and here is Tom Koopman, first of all. Tom Koopman taking just over seven minutes there. Any reactions? What does it make you feel? Don't be shy. It'd be, it'd be completely obvious. 
Wanted to go on. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. <laughs> so, how do you say when the moment starts? What's, what's the, in terms of this performance particularly? I mean, happy or sad? Be very basic. Despair. Despair, okay. Yeah, good. It's quite slow, isn't it? It's quite slow. I was surprised. I expected it to be quick. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you, you might like the one I'm going to show you in a minute. Which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, did um, any of you notice the thumping bass notes? Over and over again. It's called a pedal in music terms. A pedal. Pedals are always about tensions. That, uh, most of the time, he's writing a tonic pedal. So the, e, the tonic of E minor is E. And he's repeating that E over and over again. And it's like a headache in the back of your head. You just think, oh, God, please just stop. Um, if they really want to ratchet up the tension, they do a dominant pedal. So um, I don't need to bore you with the stuff of this, but an E minor triad it has the notes E, G, and B in it. The first, the third, and the fifth. So if you're using a tonic pedal, use one, which is E in this case. If you're using a dominant pedal, use B. And that's one of those things, it, it's just, it's hard to explain why it does this to us, but it just gets us even more wound up than a dominant pedal than having a tonic pedal. I was also, I was just scribbling as I was listening to that. It's a long orchestral introduction. You could easily be in an orchestral piece. Except I don't think it sounds like anything else anyone's ever written at that stage. There are bits of that music which sound like Brahms, who's writing 150 years later. There's one bit in the middle which is absolutely pure Brahms. Brahms idolised Bach, absolutely loved him. Um, there are things in the woodwind writing which are more reminiscent of Mozart. It's a good few years on yet than they are above. Um, and it's just got that extraordinary broad sweep. Now, um, those of you who are singing for me, that's what happens uh, when you don't sound your consonants properly. <laughs> okay, you get that slightly amorphous lack of clarity thing about the chords. You need a lot more than that. Now, here is Harnencore. Okay, I'm going to give you this one. It's hard and call one minute faster than Copeman. Yeah, that's a lot in terms of music. It's a lot faster. Any preference? Oh, so you were saying you expected to be faster. Which one? First one. So there's two, there's two sides of the coin here. So what Tom Copeman is doing is, is it's like going into a gallery and he's putting aside the curtain. He's showing you a picture of Christ suffering and saying, look at, look at this awful thing. You can't walk past this. You can't. You must stop and you must weep because this is absolutely unconvenient, it should be unconsolable. What um, Harnencore is doing is almost skipping towards the crucifixion. I feel, what I feel in that one is that you cannot stop, uh, and I'll come on to this later, you cannot stop what is going to happen. This crucifixion must happen, it's going to happen, and it's going to be painful. It's more painful in St Matthew than it is in any of the other Gospels. Jesus dies crying um, with the words, my God, my God, on his lips. Only in St Matthew. And um, we can't stop it. He tries to, well, he doesn't try to stop it, but he asks if it can be stopped. <coughs> Twice, really, in Gethsemane. He says, if it's possible for this to pass away from me. And on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a pretty devastating thing to say. Uh, whereas in the St. John Passion, it's all about fulfilment. His last words are, it is fulfilled. So I, I, I like both of these versions, but in the, in the Harlem Wars one, I feel there is this irresistible thing which is pushing <coughs> towards it. I don't like how it slows down in the middle section, and I still don't like the fact that I can't hear the final T consonant in the word <laughs> zero. <laughs> 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 <laughs>